Well, good morning and welcome everyone. Well, a lot of people here for a long weekend. See, if you're in Queensland, you get out there and use the most of the weather, you see, but you're in Melbourne. Um, welcome back. Um, thank you for all the comments I received about last week and um, it was great to hear from um, Celebrate Messiah. And um, yeah, it was, a, it was a special time. We got to, uh, with Michelle and Gary, go and have lunch um, with Paul and the poor guy got hammered. We just asked him question after question after question. Um, but it was great to have them and to see and learn more about the ministry that they do. Before Paul spoke um, last week, for the two weeks before that, I'd been looking at Romans 14. This is where Paul is discussing how to handle disputable matters in a church. Or I said it's kind of looking at the topic a bit like grace versus law. Now, obviously, you understand that the church in Rome was made up of different Christians from different backgrounds, so it did cause some trouble and some fights and quarrels. The believers in Rome were divided over things like special diets and special days. When Paul was writing about these, he called them disputable matters. Some of the members of the church thought it was a sin to eat meat, so they only ate vegetables. Other members thought it was a sin not to observe the special Jewish holy days, while others understood because of their freedom in Christ, they were not confined to follow things like diets or special days. Because of this, the Christians were judging and condemning one another. If you remember, I know it was a while ago, but so far Paul covered this and he said from Romans 14, he gave them some advice. In verses 1 to 12, Paul's main point was on receiving and accepting one another. He tells them that they should be convinced in their heart whatever personal convictions they have on such issues that they believe comes from God. He says if they're putting Jesus as Lord of their life, then whatever they're doing, they're doing for him anyway. So just accept one another. But he goes on to say, realise this. As much as it is a conviction for you, don't let it destroy the relationships you've had with one another. Understand that God may lay that conviction on you, but he may not necessarily lay it on your brother or sister. Then in verses 13 to 23, the main point was to edify one another. As Christians, they needed to develop the kind of fellowship that would protect each other and encourage one another to grow. They must exercise love and patience. And more importantly, they must be careful to not to deliberately do something or put something in front of another Christian that would cause that person to stumble. That was how they were to edify one another. Aren't you glad that you're now in the modern day church? We no longer have to deal with disputable matters. Isn't it great that the modern day church no longer has fights and quarrels over such silly things? Well, hopefully you're saying you're joking, Garth. Sadly, today we still have disputable matters in our church. Sure, they may not have anything to do with diets or days, but we still have things like how people dress, church membership, baptism, predestination, divorce, music in church, hymns, choirs, or what churches write certain types of music and should they be played. In nearly every church today, there is still disputable matters between believers. And yes, they can still cause havoc and grief. Such disputable matters can get in the way of us, 
Christians truly accepting and edifying one another. They can destroy relationships, which in turn does not bring glory to God in any way. So I believe we still need the words and advice that Paul gives in Romans. And today we're finishing it with what he says in Romans 15. But first, let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you're a relational God. And I thank you, Father, that you save us and you put us into a Christian family. And Father, I thank you that um, we all come from different backgrounds and all walks of life, but you put us together, you mould us together, and you call us your church. And Father, I pray that as we look at this last section today, that you will encourage us, first and foremost, you remind us of the great grace that we have in you, but also how we can bestow that on one another. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Romans 15, verse 1 to 4 says this. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbours for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it was written, the insult of those who insult you have fallen on me. Paul has said, accept one another, edify one another, and today's piece of advice found in this section is please one another. You understand when it comes to living your life, you can go through life trying to please two types of groups of people. You can go through life trying to please others, or you can go through life trying to please yourself. In the opening verses of this chapter, Remember, this is still a continuation of 14. There's no gap in this. It is a direct continuation. Paul is still on the topic of strong and weak Christians. And he even classified himself in this part as one of the strong Christians. He says, when it comes to dealing and accepting and building up the weak Christians, the strong have a basic problem, selfishness. They are still out to please themselves, he says. They are still out to live as they see fit in the freedom of God, regardless of what's going to happen or what it does to the young Christian. They do it, sadly, not for a moment, thinking what impact it's going to have on others. Paul uses two words in this section that help us see and grasp where he's coming from when we look at the original meaning. When we look at these two words, it gives us a greater understanding of what he's trying to betray. The first word he uses is the word bear. He says, bear with the failings of the weak. Do you know, I remember when I was in Queensland at my last church, one of my jobs was, hated it, was to rewrite the constitution, to go through the constitution and, and look at it and how do we change it and, you know, for certain issues and stuff like that. And I remember I was looking at our section on members and fellowship and we had the wording in our constitution how important it is as members of Tugulawa Baptist Church that we bear with one another. And I remember at the meeting I saying, I don't like that. We need to change this word. I hate this word, bear with one another, because it always makes me think of my mother. I remember when me and my brothers or sisters would fight, my mum would just say, look, just stop doing it and bear with one another. It was always said in a negative context, just put up with each other. Bear with one another. Come on, your brothers, your sisters, just get on with each other. So when I said that, thankfully, some of the older, more wiser people in the group pointed out to me why the word bear was actually written originally in the Constitution. 
Because when you look at the word bear in the correct meaning of the Greek, it's not a negative positive, it's not a negative word. It's not about just putting up with one another. It means to take up or to carry someone with open hands. It's to take up in order to carry or to bear or to put oneself to be carried, to sustain them, to uphold them, to support them. So Paul's message in using this word bear is, you older Christians, stop just doing whatever you think is right. Be willing to carry each other, especially the younger Christians. Be there with open hands ready to lift them, ready to support them, bear with them, and that is what the word means. This will help them along in their spiritual journey. This will help them grow. The second word he uses, and the main one for my sermon, is the word please. In the Greek, this is a very deep word. It's more than just making other people happy. This word please means to strive to please someone by accommodating or taking on the opinions, desires and interests of the other person. Wow. It carries the notion of putting aside our opinions, our belief, our desires to make that person happy. We take their beliefs, their desires and their interests. Each of us should do this because we have the good of others in our agenda. The word please is not some lovey-dovey feeling word. It is rather a distinct purpose to put, on a, to put your strong opinions, your strong desires, your interests aside to help build the young ones up. How hard is that for us to do, especially those that have been with the Lord for a long time? Well, how hard is it? Well, that depends on who you're out to please. If you're out to please others or yourself will determine how hard it is. When you said, as I said, when you put both these words together, you can see Paul is challenging them and us. Each of us should bear, carry, support, sustain, be ready with open hands to help the young. And we should be there to please others, put our strong opinions, desires and interests aside and take on theirs, help them. Why? For the fellow believer, it is good to build them up. He is talking about pleasing one another, building one another up for the glory of God. As Christians, we don't have to endure one another. We don't even have to put up with one another. We are to bear, encourage and please others. Always remember this. True Christian love is not selfish. Rather, it seeks to share with others and to please them. It is about putting their desires before your own. Again, you may be sitting here and thinking, gas on his loving, dovey, feeling, receiving others and building up this family. What's the point? Why even go down this track? Well, the point is this. God has already done it for every one of us, and that's what Paul says. Paul says, you want a starting point on what it's like to give up your rights in a relationship? If you want a starting point of what it's like to bear and to please someone from this real deep meaning, then here's a supreme example for you. He says the supreme example is our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, for Christ did not live to please himself. He paid a tremendous price in order to minister to us. In fact, Paul quoted Psalm 69.9 to prove his point. 
the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Do you know, I've always wondered why Paul quoted Psalm 69 here. In some ways, it really doesn't make sense. I mean, I I would have done a better job, I think, because I would have picked a better psalm. Why do I say that? Because if you read Psalm 69, it's a horrible psalm. It's a terrible psalm. It is full of pain. Psalm 69 is full of despair. It's full of persecution. It's about someone at the end of the road reaching out for help. It is full of turmoil. But what does Paul say in verse 4? Remember, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Do you need hope and encouragement? Well, that's why the word of God was written. In the word, we find the grace given to us that helps us give grace to others. The word of God, he said, gives us the patience and encouragement that we need. I guess in some way that's why Paul chose Psalm 69. Most of these older, stronger believers would have known exactly what Psalm 69 was about. They would have known the whole thing. They would have known about how it's about pain, despair, persecution and someone reaching out for help. Perhaps he was hoping that they would identify with that psalm and do exactly the same to the younger Christians. Have you ever been in this situation so low that all you can do is cry out for help? Have you ever been at the end of the road and you've cried out to God for help? What does he do? He helps. He doesn't ask questions. He knows your sins. He knows what troubles you're in. He knows your highs of life, your lows of life. He doesn't ask you to explain anything. He doesn't say you're in this situation because he steps in and he helps. And probably for all of us, there was no greater time when he did this than what Dennis was speaking of before at our conversion. At the very beginning of our relationship when we first came to know who Jesus really was. Do you remember when you first realised that you were a sinner before God? You only needed one thing then. All you needed then was a saviour, someone to step in and make it right. And someone did because you learned that someone was Jesus, that someone was Jesus. He took that spot. Do you know, many have told me when I've shared the gospel with people, they've told me they're too bad for God. Many have told me, well, what what I need to do is I need to stop doing this or I need to change this or I need to fix this before I come to God. I give the same answer every time to that person. Never do you have to get clean to take a bath. Never do you have to get clean to take a bath. Why? Because all the cleaning has been done. You don't have to change anything. God is the one that has made you clean. No doubt you've heard of the term, and it was said even today, the ultimate sacrifice. Do you know, sadly, people still use this terminology for different things. I've heard it mentioned about sports players who've made the ultimate sacrifice, giving up a position for a team. Or a husband and wife making the ultimate sacrifice by putting themselves out for their partner. 
or parents making the ultimate sacrifice of going without for their children. These are nice, but let me tell you, none of them come close to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In fact, you can only have one ultimate sacrifice because that's the way it works. I never knew what an ultimate sacrifice could really be like until I met Jesus. And I think I've shared with you that came from a school teacher of mine in Broken Hill who did a lot for me. And I said to him, Mr. Kells, I can't believe how much you've given up for me. And he says, Garth, I know someone who's given up a lot more. If as a Christian we think we are making a great sacrifice by giving up some food or some drink, or if as a Christian we think making a great sacrifice is in the way we please others, then let's measure it, Paul says, by Jesus Christ. Let's measure it by that, because no sacrifice we can ever make matches Calvary. A person's spiritual maturity is revealed by his discernment. He is willing to give up his rights that others may be helped. He is willing to give up his rights to show grace to others. He does this not as a burden, but Paul says it's a blessing. Just as a loving parent makes sacrifices for their children, so the mature Christian sacrifices thing to help the young Christians grow in their faith. What a great thing to do, to please others knowing you are helping them and you're not being a hindrance to their faith. Now, I know this kind of teaching just rolls off the tongue. I know in real life, though, it's much harder to do. I mean, it's easy to read it and know it, but we're not God. We don't have his love and we don't have his patience. We would all know people in our lives that when we get with them, the last thing we want to do is support them and please them. Man, at times we just prefer to make them bleed rather than to please them. It's hard at times. We need help. And Paul shares the source of the spiritual help that we must draw from. If we are to live to please others, then we need the word of God. He said that's what it's all about. The word of God is written there for your encouragement, for you to gain acceptance, for you to gain um, perseverance. Why? To give it to others. It is so interesting when the Bible talks about church conflict, relationship issues, meeting families, work situations, whenever there's conflict in these areas, and I could go on, it always says the most powerful, life-changing thing we have in this world to help us in those situations is the word of God. Come back to the word. Think of this for a minute. Have you ever known a church or a mission organisation or a workplace or a family or whatever that are committed to God and committed to his word? Do you know I have? Great things happen when you see that. When you see a family that are all committed to God and his word, when you see a workplace or a mission agency or a church that are all committed to God and his work, great things happen. This suggests to us that the local church must major on the word of God. Paul finishes this section with a prayer for his readers. After telling them all of this, even from the start of Romans 14, 
This is his ending. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Jesus Christ so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God of our Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. We are in a great privileged position. What position? We have the wonderful opportunity to receive one another, to edify one another, and to please one another. How do you do it? Just as Christ has done for you. Do you know, I, I think I've shared before, but when I was in Queensland, I was a, a member with um, a team that used to go into churches that have gone through turmoil and splits or fights or whatever. And, you know, so often we would go there and we'd say, okay, what was the first thing? How did it start? And, you know, nine out of ten times people could not remember how it started. But they would be able to tell us what so-and-so done, what so-and-so did, what so-and-so said. It was really sad. I know Paul is writing about disputable matters and I know we still have disputable matters in our, in our churches. And not that he says this, but I want to say this. No disputable matter can cause a fight. No disputable matter in a church can cause a split. No disputable matter um, in a church can cause havoc. People do. It is what do people do with that disputable matter? That's what problem is. As I said, this last section is a prayer from Paul. You can see his heart in his prayer. His prayer is this, the God who gives endurance and encouragement will give them a spirit of unity. A unity where they have one heart and one mouth. Wow. This tells me this, the role of the church is to have one heart and one mouth. Why? It's not for our glory, but rather, he says, for the glory of God. When the church has unity, when the church has this oneness of one mouth and one heart, it, re it reveals and gives out the glory of God. Do you know that video that I just showed at the start? I think it's a great example of the church. No, I haven't lost my mind. Bear with me. Do you know, you have that guy playing the double bass or viola. He's there with one person. He starts playing. Feels on his own, I guess. But then other people come, you know, and they start to join in. But, you know, while he's playing and while others are coming on, you watch the crowd. People still, some are there watching, others keep talking in the background while others keep moving around and don't really stop and don't pay any notice to the music that is being played. But when unity is happening, when we are not fighting or despising one another as a church, when we're accepting, edifying and pleasing one another as a church, great things can happen. How great? Watch this.
you know what I like about that? Is the people. Did you watch the change in the people? It went from people walking past to people talking to no one walking past, to no one talking. In fact, people were climbing light bulbs, uh, light poles. People were conducting. What, do you see that guy that was telling his girlfriend or whatever about what they're doing? Everything was involved. Everyone. When you play it from start to finish, the music goes for about four and a half minutes. My thing is this. That orchestra was connected by one piece of music. If they can make it that much difference to the people around them in four and a half minutes, how much difference—sorry, I shouldn't bang. How much difference can a church make when they're living the word of God to those around them? We can have that impact. We can have that impact by our relationships being right. Do you know, most of you where I worked a lot with Aboriginals um, when I joined MMM. Before I worked with them, I, I Michelle and I travelled around and we went to different places and. We learnt one, and this is um, an Aboriginal elder from, uh, I met her at Canombal in Western Australia. And she said, oh, he said, what's very interesting is this, when you look at Aboriginal churches, and she's right. She says, go and study Aboriginal churches and you'll find you won't find one that ever had a split. You won't find one where there was a division in the church. Now, I know when us white people got involved with UAM and AIM and everything like that, there was divisions and stuff like that. With the, with the ministries, but she was saying, look at the churches, look at the Aboriginal churches and communities. And she says, I'll tell you why, Gov. We believe this. We believe in right relationships before right theology and right ministry. Now, I know for some of us who are all thinking, right theology, that's the most important thing. How can she be like that? How can the Aboriginal church be like that? Well, I can tell you because I've spent a lot of time and I was pastoring one for three years and I've been... For them, relationships is the bottom line. The bottom line for any Aboriginal person is relationships. They will tell you, you can't have right theology, you can't have right ministry without right relationships. Because they said your theology and your ministry is not your starting point in a church. It's your relationships. I remember seeing this firsthand. When we were leaving Sherberg, we were supported by a church in Melbourne and a church in Adelaide. And Michelle and I thought, how can we thank them for the generous support they'd been to us for three years? And what we decided to do was to take a group um, of Sherberg people, Aboriginals, and take them here to um, our church here at Mill Park and to our church in Adelaide. And um, they were all billeted out and, you know, everything like that. And I remember when we were in our Adelaide church, a bit like Dennis did today, got up, ladies and someone got up, uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to church. Um, you know, it's great to be here. Well, I think he'd gone on for about a minute and then one of my Aboriginal brothers said, oh, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I've got to come up, got to come up. And I thought, oh, my gosh, what's happening here? And anyway, this guy, his name was Jeffrey. He got up, he stood up, and he said, ah, oh, he said, oh, look, sorry, brother, sorry, brother. He said, uh, this morning, me and the missus, we, we, we had a big argument. And he says, we can't sit in church, you know, rightly, with, with our big argument. And he says, I, I want my host family, 
as I said, they'll be like that, to come up and pray for me and my wife. Freaked the host family out, freaked our church out as well, like, because us, we don't do that, you know, if we have a fight. We, no one knows about it. But, you know, for them, they couldn't sit through church knowing he had an argument with his wife that morning. Why? Because it's right relationships before right theology and ministry. Or you can't have right theology and ministry without right relationships. The result of this, of course, as Paul says in Romans 15, 7, all of that brings glory to God. Remember Jesus' words in John 13. All men will know that you are my followers by your great children's programs. No. All men will know you're my followers by your immense understanding of the scriptures. No. All men will know that you're my followers by the wonderful church that you attend. No. All men will know that you are my followers by the way you love one another. That's how God gets the glory. That's how people out there see what's going on in here. All men will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. Or as Paul told us, all men will know that you are my followers by the way you accept, edify and please one another. May God bless you richly.